Let's pray before we hear the word of God. Lord, we have sung of communion with you. And we pray that that might be our experience now. That as we look into your word, you would minister to us and we would respond to you from our hearts as we hear again of all the privileges that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. If you have your Bible open at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, as we think of the privileges that we have as a church together with all of God's people, it's easy to say, yes, I can understand how to be part of God's nation over which he is the king. That's a great privilege. And yeah, I can understand it's how it's a privilege to be part of God's family, where God is the Father, my heavenly Father, and other Christians are brothers and sisters. But a temple? How is that a privilege? Well, if you were a Jew in the time of Paul, you would begin to appreciate it. Because the Jew and the Jew only could enter the temple of God and worship there in the courts of God. If you were a Gentile, there was a place where it says, you can't enter on pain of death. But now, Gentiles can not only enter, that's you and me, we're actually part of the temple itself. That's what a great privilege it is. And that means we just don't go in and out. We are permanently part of the temple. The blessings that God promised in the Old Testament are far greater in their fulfillment than you can imagine from reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked about all nations coming to the temple in Jerusalem. For example, Isaiah chapter 2. It even talked of a new temple, didn't it? Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. But the reality, the fulfillment, far transcends all of that. That's always the way it is between the fulfilment and the promise. So we're going to look at what these verses have to say about the church as God's temple. And that's the first thing that I want to bring to you. The church is God's temple. God is engaged in a great building project. What did Jesus say? I will build my church, he says. That's what he's come to do. Paul to the Corinthians says, you Corinthians, you are uh, God's building. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. 
So this is why that Christians, when they gather together, they are called a temple of God. Again, those Corinthians in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says to them very specifically in verse 16 of chapter 3, you are God's temple. Why temple? Well, a temple is built as a dwelling place for the God, if you think of many religions, but for God, that's what you have, in fact, in verse 22, isn't it? In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's why we're called a temple. In the Old Testament, why was Moses told to build a tabernacle? Well, in Exodus 25 and verse 8, God says, let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, if you like, where I may dwell in their midst, he says. And then when that tabernacle was built in the, at Mount Sinai, what happened? Do you know what happened when it was completed? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was present and that cloud remained over the tabernacle, didn't it? And when Solomon built the temple, you read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, in exactly the same way, when it was completed, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's what it means to be the temple. It's the special, because God is everywhere, it's the special dwelling place of God in the midst of his assembled people. Do you believe that? Even this evening? And yet we're often so thoughtless, aren't we? If we were to go to a, a big meeting where really important people were coming, could we say the Queen was going to grace us with her presence? Surely as she approached, there would be a hush. There'd be a recognition of, humanly speaking, the greatness of the one who is coming. How much more then if God is specially present with us? You know, this is more wonderful than being a citizen and a family member. It's the third picture of the church. And it's more wonderful because the emphasis with the temple is on the unity of God's people. Uh, Gentile believers with Jewish. Now, in many homes, let's say uh, near Eastern homes, uh, African homes, what you have, a number of rooms around a courtyard and different members of the family can live in different rooms. They don't actually have to talk to one another, do they? They just go in and out if they wish. They may not be on good terms with one another, though they're in a family dwelling. They're called a household. How much more that's true of a, a nation? 
but a temple building. Each stone is intimately connected with the next stone and in that way with every other stone. Otherwise, the building can't stand. There's permanent cohesion. That's why verse 21 talks about being joined together. As a citizen, you may appeal to the king, humanly speaking, and wait to be granted audience. Hopefully a child can approach the father, at least in the evening when he comes home from work. But God dwells within his temple. Just as Jesus says, we will come, the Father and myself, we will come and make our home with him. Let's say two things about this temple. First of all, its foundation. We're told in verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Every building must have a proper foundation if it's going to last. What is our foundation? Well, it's the apostles. It's the 12 plus Paul. The apostles are those who were called and sent by Christ. The 12 are special. You can read in Revelation that the New Jerusalem uh, has the, the, the 12 specially there in the building. They're a very special group of men who were commissioned to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can read that in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And they're the ones to whom the Lord Jesus promised that he would reveal all the truth. That's not really a promise to us. He's speaking to them in the upper room. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come and he will teach you all things. He will guide you into all the truth, he tells them. And then there are the prophets. These are not the Old Testament prophets. These are the New Testament prophets. First of all, you notice it's not prophets and apostles, it's apostles and prophets. Just as it is in chapter 3 and verse 5, just down where it talks about as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, same order, but it's being revealed now, not then. So the prophets are New Testament prophets. Uh, prophet is one to whom God reveals his message. Uh, uh, men speak from God. God speaks to them and they speak to his people. That's a prophet. The apostles were prophets. There were other prophets. We know, for example, of one called Agabus. Um, probably what this means, or possibly it means the apostles and other prophets, because, of course, the apostles were also uh, prophets. But this is the point. The foundation of the church is the teaching office. These men, apostles and prophets, were given to us in order to reveal the word of God to us. So as they fulfill that function, 
so they are the foundation. And for us, of course, this is the New Testament scriptures, which in turn are based upon the Old Testament. So it's the truth, the instruction, the word of God, then that becomes the foundation. Then secondly, we have one particular part of the foundation called the cornerstone. You have that again at the end of verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being uh, the cornerstone. Uh, this comes from the Old Testament, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28. Uh, says the, the stone that was rejected by you builders has become the cornerstone. It's, a, it's the most significant stone in the foundation. Because where that stone is put determines the uh, uh, direction, uh, the size, everything about the building. And as uh, Paul says here, the whole building uh, grows on this cornerstone. You go into verse 21. In whom the whole structure, so he's the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure then grows. So the whole emphasis here is on Christ. He is the building or the most important part of the building, the one on which everything else depends. Even the apostles and prophets, they speak of Christ, don't they? Do you see the structure here? It's important that you look at structure, by the way, when you read the Bible, see the connections. You see, the end of verse 20 says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Then verse 21 begins, at least in the ESV, in whom, the whole structure. And then verse 22 begins, in him, again. It's all in Christ. So then the foundation is Christ. All that he has accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. All that we learn about him in the teaching of the apostles and prophets. The foundation is that great message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, there are things that we're going to learn from this. This is such an important truth for us today that I must draw out some implications for you. First of all, there are no holy places today because we are the holy temple. Now, I don't think that's a problem for us, but it's a problem for many people. If we were in a, uh, what's called a church building, uh, many church buildings, if a child started running up the front, <gasps> you'd be horrible, how can you go up the front of the church? Don't you know? It's not true, is it? There's no physical building which is a holy place. We are the temple. Let's do away with all that language of altars and priests. That's Old Testament. It had its usefulness. Thank God for it. Uh, it's all been fulfilled in Christ and in his people. And 
there is no place for a future physical temple in Jerusalem. Let that be said so clearly. That is regression. That's going back to the type. We are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We are the temple. Let's recognise then how very special to God we are. We don't deserve it, do we? We're totally unworthy. But that's his grace. Then secondly, the New Testament apostles and prophets, please do listen carefully and get this. They are unique. There is no continuation. Why? Because they're the foundation. Now, if this, we are sitting and standing on the foundation, aren't we? Imagine that the builders kept building the foundation. I mean, you can't do that, can you? You lay the foundation so that you can put up the building. And that's what God has done. He's given apostles and prophets to lay the foundation. And to say that they exist today is to say that God is still revealing himself and the Bible is not complete. Yes, the apostles and prophets are still a gift to the church in the sense that we depend upon them as the foundation in terms of the truth that they have revealed in our scriptures. And so in the same way, so-called apostolic succession is simply a figment of the imagination. They are the foundation. Third implication is that the foundation of the church is the teaching of the scriptures. The scriptures are complete. You can't add or take away from the foundation. And these scriptures, God has revealed, are all we need to know for life and godliness. Paul says to Timothy that they're able to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Whatever we need to believe, whatever's to be condemned as untrue, it must have the authority of the apostles and prophets in the scripture. We must stand like Luther and say, I can't retract anything unless you show me it's not in the Bible. But if it's in the scripture, I stand by it. Fourthly, it is all implications. Church unity is based on faith in the teaching of the apostles and prophets because we're all built upon that foundation. So that's where our unity is. If someone's built on another faith or another teaching, it's another building. And we can't be united with them. Without agreement in the apostles' teaching, there can't be any true uh, unity. It's so important in the day of ecumenism. Uh, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones has a lovely biggish booklet on John 17 that our unity must be in the truth. For example, just consider what Paul has written already in Ephesians, the great teachings about sin and salvation. If people don't confess that once every person by nature was dead in trespasses and sins, we can't be united with them, can we? If they don't confess that we're saved by grace through faith, we can't be united with them. If they don't confess that we've been reconciled by the blood of Christ, we can't be reconciled, we can't be united with them. There are these irreducible minimums that are recorded even right here in our very chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the importance then as a church of our steadfast continuing in the apostles teaching which is what was true of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 then the fifth and final implication here is that you're a stone in the temple only if you've received these very teachings every stone is resting upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets a Christian is one who believes from the heart certain great teachings. If you're a Christian, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not empty confession, uh, a real confession. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you are saved by that, Romans chapter 10 says. You believe that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. That's the only way you can come and be placed as a stone into God's temple. One could go on, there are so many other things that we could say, but the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you firmly fixed? on that foundation. Not because you're here amongst us, we're so happy that you're here or you listen to this preaching. It's not enough to attend or even to have knowledge. Is this your heartfelt confession so that you live for Christ and you die for him as he died for you? So the church is... Uh, God's temple is so important to flesh that out from verse 20 and to draw the implications. Now then let's talk about the building of the temple because we've seen the foundation. This temple is in the process of being built. Verse 21 talks about the whole structure being joined together. And specifically the Gentiles are being included. That's the amazing thing. So in, in whom the whole structure, verse 22, in whom you also. Now you probably never watched a stonemason because 
you're seeing here. What you see are trucks that bring, if they bring stones, they're already machine cut, aren't they? Have you ever seen a stonemason get his hammer and chisel out today? Even today, well, there in Kenya, that's what happens. So this, the, from the quarry, they blast and they bring all these odd-shaped bits of stone and they just dump them at the site of the building. And now it's for the stonemason, as he builds the walls, to look over those stones and say, ah, that's the one that's going to fit here. It may have to do with size, shape, in a beautiful building like our Trinity Baptist Church there in Nairobi, because we've got different coloured natural stones, grey, uh, yellow, and, and so on. Then you, you choose, if you're a, a careful stonemason, so that the stone fits exactly in the space that is before you. And so uh, Paul here uh, talks about the structure being joined uh, together. This is a word that's only found in Christian context. It seems that Paul coined the word itself. It's made up of a, a noun meaning joint, which obviously <laughs> joins two things together. And uh, it's made up of a prefix uh, with, like we have in the word symphony. Uh, you can have music which is an instrumental, you have one instrument. But when you have a symphony, you have many uh, phones, uh, sounds, joining together. That's why it's called a symphony. And that's the word he uses here. But you see, he's repeating himself, isn't he? Join already means two things together. But he doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to understand that uh, there's real unity here. So he adds the prefix to make sure that you and I, we, we grasp it. Uh, the King James, I think, or the New King James has fitly framed together. So that word fitly, you see, emphasises how things are together. Chapter 4, verse 16 is the only other place where you have this word where the ESV translates it as joined and held together. So it's a great emphasis upon the togetherness. So let's look again at what this is telling us. First of all, it's telling us as God builds the church, this temple, he's the one who chooses the stones like a master mason. Stone, of course, doesn't put itself in the building. First of all, God chose the cornerstone. Peter emphasises this in his letter, 1 Peter 2. Jesus Christ is chosen and precious. He's the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. But actually, he was exactly the stone needed in the foundation for the building of the church. And so it is with every part of the building. Isn't that a wonderful thought? But we know it to be true. God chooses us. He says, I want you. He said that already in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Even as he chose us in Christ, 
before the foundation of the world. If he hadn't have done it, we would never have fit, would we? Because he had to take a very rough stone and he had to chisel it in order for it to fit in his beautiful building. But it is a very humbling truth because we want to think that we have done it. We haven't done it. He's the one who's taken us and he's fashioned us. And there's nothing, there's no reason in, uh, in us why he should have chosen us. So when we talk to one another, if we say, well, how did you become a Christian? Then we find, don't we, it's the Lord who has done it. It's the Lord who has chosen us. It's the Lord who has changed us and fitted us into his uh, kingdom. But... Of course, the stones are different and they're individually prepared as the building uh, goes up. There are, in the context here, Jews and Gentiles. Very different people. There are men and women. There are slaves and free. There are all kinds of people with differing abilities and different characters. And that's the way it ought to be. Some of the most beautiful buildings have variety of colour and size and pattern. And in the cults, and many, pardon me, going back to Africa, because it's where I can get my illustrations from, uh, in many African forms of Christianity, there's a uniformity. Everybody wears a white gown. Everybody wears a certain kind of turban. Everyone puts a red cross. If you belong to that group, but if you belong to another group, you put a cross with another line on it and that distinguishes you. There's a uniformity of people in terms of dress. That's not how it is in God's church. And every stone, every different stone is vital to the strength and the beauty of the building. Isn't that how Paul, under a different figure, pictures the church as a body? What if the church, if the body was all an eye? Where would the hearing be? Thank God there are eyes and ears and noses and tongues and arms and legs and so on. And they all go up to make the body. And so it is with the temple. This is the encouragement for you this evening. God has an exact place in the wall for you. As he chooses. And he's fitted you there. Don't wish you were someone else. <laughs> you are who you are. And God has given you the gifts you have. You do have gifts. You have a place. Be content to be there. And to use those gifts for the sake of the whole building. And then the stones are united to each other, aren't they? There's very close union here, closer even than a nation or a family. I need to emphasise this to you. Some of you perhaps, many, they just unite on a Sunday morning. And I said, I'll give an hour and a half, maybe two hours as I talk outside. Or it could be Sunday evening. And... That's not the picture of the temple, is it? If you're part of the temple, it's permanent. It's 24-7, 365. 
until you leave this world. So I urge you to consider these three figures and ask yourself if you have any experience of that unity with God's people. Just two other things to look at as we go through these verses. What's the character of the temple? We've looked at the fact that it is uh, the um, temple. Uh, The church is the temple. We've looked at God's building it. Now, what's the character? Look at verse uh, 21. It's a holy temple. It's a holy temple. Holy, first of all, means something that's set apart for God alone to use. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be an object. So here's a temple which is holy. If it's for God's use, my friends, then it has to be used as God wants, according to his instructions. This temple is not something we can use for ourselves. We are not at liberty to invent ways of worship, for example. This is God's temple. If I come to your, to your house, don't I have to abide by your rules? If it's a custom in your house that shoes are taken off at the door, as it is in many homes, do I not have to do that? Because it's your house. If it was my house and that's not the rule, then it's, it's different. In God's house, in God's temple, we do what he says. And those in the Old Testament who disobeyed God's rules, they suffered awful consequences, didn't they? You know about Nadab and Abihu who offered unauthorized fire? Were struck down by fire? The very act of their offering? Uzzah, who stretched out his hand to steady the ark, was struck down dead. Why? Because you were not to touch the ark. And number two, it should not have been carried on a cart. It should have been carried with poles. Today, the world has come into the church. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish the church from the world. May I say to you that because we obey God's instructions, the world should feel very uncomfortable amongst us, don't you think? The world now, I don't mean somebody who's seeking who's been convicted. They should be unable to understand us. And if the unbeliever enjoys our worship, I think there's something wrong. Has he been challenged with his sin? Has he been shown that he's utterly hopeless without Christ? And then he's going to hell if he doesn't repent. So it's a holy temple, Paul says. And then finally, let's look at the purpose of the temple in verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple is not built as a comfortable place of relaxation (laughs) for the worshippers. Temple is built for the glory of the God who indwells it. We do enjoy ourselves, don't we? I hope. But we haven't come to enjoy ourselves, have we? We've come 
first of all, to worship God. If you build a home, you want to live in it, usually. And you want it exactly as you want it. Again, imagine I come into your home and say, you know, I don't like the way you've arranged this living room. I think the sofa should be here. And the but it's your home. You have it as you want it to be. So let's remember that we are God's temple. We exist for him and not he for us. Imagine going into a nice home and finding it empty. This provokes the question, which I think is a very serious question for us as Belvedere Road Church. Is the Spirit of God really among us? That question presses upon us, doesn't it? Because the church is built for that purpose. Do we just assume? May I say then two things by which we can know God by his spirit is present with us. First of all, that we build on the proper foundation. Because I'm not suggesting that we're not. I haven't chosen to preach this because uh, I'm castigating the church. I believe we are on the foundation. Thank the Lord for that. But only if we are built on the foundation can we expect God to dwell in our midst. Otherwise, there's another building. Only as we preach Christ, truly God and truly man, Christ as the sinless saviour, Christ as the second Adam, come to live the life that we have not lived and cannot live. Christ who has come to die the death we deserve to die, but will not because of him. Christ raised, Christ glorified, Christ returning. If that's our foundation, that's apostolic and prophetic, we can expect the Spirit to be present. Then, secondly, how does the Spirit manifest his presence? Do we look around and say, oh, you know, half the seats here are empty. I don't think the Spirit could be present. Is that the way you're going to judge the Spirit's presence? I hope not. Where two or three are gathered together in Christ's name. He is there in that special way. Is it loudness? It is for many, isn't it? The more noise that you can make, the more obvious it is that the Spirit is present. Is it enthusiastic singing? Endless singing. That is the mark in many, I'm afraid. But these are all things that can be true of the world, aren't they? The world has its crowds. In fact, the world has its crowds, the like of which we hardly ever see, Christian-wise. The world has its loudness. And the world can sing, can't it, at a football match. The mark of the Spirit's presence, my dear brethren, is that he humbles us. 
we are a humble and contrite people because we've come to see our unworthiness before him because of our sin and our ignorance. That's the one thing the world doesn't have and cannot have. That's why Matthew 5, 3, the beginning of the Beatitudes began, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first great mark of the Spirit's presence. And then the Spirit shows us the Lord Jesus Christ as the great hope of unworthy sinners. And when Christ is magnified, then we know the Spirit is present because he's come to glorify Christ. Isn't that what happened on the day of Pentecost? Peter preached. They were cut to the heart. What can we do? We have cried crucify to our Messiah. What can we do? Repent and you'll be forgiven your sins. So when we see man abased and Christ exalted, we know the Spirit is at work and he's present. I brought these two messages to seek to encourage you. We may be small. We certainly are weak. We wonder what's going on. But I'm telling you, we are greatly privileged, more than anyone else in the world who's not a Christian, that we belong to his church by his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And will you then, as I finish, will you notice the Trinitarian emphasis again in these words? It's the, <coughs> the Father who makes the choice of who dwells in the home and the temple. It's the Son who purchases them to be citizens, uh, to be members of the household, to be st living stones in the temple. And it's the Spirit of God who takes possession of the building. What a privilege to be part of a building in which the three persons of the Trinity have been engaged from eternity, the very grand plan of redemption, which will be completed when we meet around the throne in glory. You be sure that by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through repentance towards God and faith in Christ, that you are part of that glorious temple. Good, let's pray together then. Lord, we do praise you for your eternal plans. We thank you that you planned from eternity this glorious temple of your people. We thank you, Son of God, that you came and you redeemed us from our sins by dying upon the cross in our place. And Holy Spirit, we praise you also that you have worked in us, you have humbled us and convicted us of our sins. 
and brought us to Christ, to trust in him. And now you indwell us, you indwell us as your people. We bless you for these things. And pray now as we uh, close in uh, singing our final hymn that all the praise and honour may be yours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.